policy and hear her use a different set of words like justice and dignity, water, drought, protest, diplomacy. She knows the business of foreign policy very deeply and firsthand, and at the same time, she seems to always keep in mind what's important and what government is supposed to actually do in the first place, and that is to serve citizens, ordinary people, and provide some measure of fairness. So I guess I'd say that she's a foreign policy person, not only with a really great mind, but also a warm heart, and is holding a vision for a saner world. Let's go now to our conversation with Phyllis Bennis. I'd like now to welcome Phyllis Bennis. She's a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. She's the author of many books, including Understanding ISIS and the New Global War on Terror, and the sixth updated edition of Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict. Welcome. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. Now, this show, our program, is called Radio Activism, and a lot of the activist movements that people are involved with for basic rights, human rights, basic opportunities, clean water and air, climate, racial justice. These are things that people can understand and they can work on strategies to get there. When it comes to foreign policy, I think it's much harder for so many Americans. First of all, most of us don't really know exactly what the issues are in countries that the U.S. is supporting or, or fighting against, how their governments work, even where they are. I'm continually looking things up on maps nor do we understand the history of U.S. relations with them, why we seem to be in a state of continual war. And I think, and I, I'd love you to comment on this, I mean, I think part of that is that we've internalized a set of coexisting contradictory narratives about this country that range from, on the one side, America is this strong yet benevolent nation that lights a path of democracy for the world to follow. If only. If only. <laughs> and on the other hand, an entirely power and resource-driven motive that was summed up on the bumper sticker that said, kick their ass, take their gas. Ooh. Okay, and so how do we begin to make sense of what U.S. foreign policy, not what it says it is, but what it actually is? It's a really good question, Mary Charlotte. I think that there's two ways we have to think about this. One has to do with the origins of this country, which were expansionist from the very beginning. And the early expansion, you know, the country grounded as Howard Zinn taught us in his great book, The People's History of the United States. This is a country that was grounded and became powerful through genocide and slavery genocide against the indigenous population and slavery of black Africans who were brought here in chains. And we also, we should keep it always in mind, we also from day one were the country of movements against genocide and slavery, and that's really important. But part of what that looked like was this so-called westward expansion, land, gold, all the things that made this country wealthy and powerful. And if there were enormous nations of peoples across that land that were going to be slaughtered so that white European settlers could take it, so be it. That's what happened. And when we got to the coast, when we suddenly now controlled this whole swath of a continent, then we extended. And the expansionism of U.S. power headed for Hawaii and the Philippines and Cuba and on and on around the world. And that's been part of our origin. So that's one part of it. 
The other part of it, in terms of understanding the complexity of it, because I think you're right, it's really hard, most especially for people who are facing in their daily life the challenges that come from racism and Islamophobia and attacks on immigrants and all the things that we now see escalating, the the climate attacks, all the things that are impacting people in a very immediate way. And a lot of people are faced with, with crises in their own lives as a result, and their fight back, understandably and appropriately, is focused on that. In that context, it's hard to think about what is the U.S. doing around the world in Yemen or in in Palestine or in Syria or somewhere else. And there, I think the thing that makes it come home, if you will, is if we look at budgets. I think the the U.S. federal budget is one of the most complex, crazy-ass documents that ever exists. I know one person in Washington who knows how to read it. <laughs> that She's the only one. She's a former colleague of mine at IPS. Nobody in Congress has ever read the federal budget. It's designed to be completely opaque. You can't figure it out. I've, I've tried to look it up. Yeah, you can't. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. But, and I will I'll say in a minute, there is an incredible group in western Massachusetts whose sole job it is to, to sort out the, the federal budget for the rest of us, and, it, and they do a great job. But there's just one simple thing that can give us a sense of this. Trump's proposed new budget for next year starts with the existing budgets for, for example, the Pentagon budget. So the Pentagon budget, the baseline budget, is $568 billion. And we could talk about what's a billion. Who the hell knows what's a billion? You know, you might as well say a gazillion for all that anybody really knows. But it's a lot of money, right? It's a lot of money. And that doesn't even count the cost of veterans. That's another $180 billion that's separate. It doesn't cost, it doesn't include the cost of the nuclear weapons arsenal. That's about $20 billion more. That's in the energy department. And ironically, it doesn't include, wait for it, the cost of war. That's a separate budget, too. So this is just the budget to, like, keep the lights on at the Pentagon, pay That's the salaries. That's so weird that it's the really Pentagon weird. budget doesn't include fighting right. wars. Yeah, that budget is called the Overseas Contingency Operations. Talk about an Orwellian destruction of language, you know. And that but comes from Obama. It, well, it comes from Obama, but there's always been a separate budget like that for these wars. started with George Bush, and then Obama did the same thing, and Trump is doing the same thing. But if we just look at that baseline budget, the $568 billion, Trump started with that and then added, or he's proposing to add, $54 billion more. It's a huge amount of money. And there's two things we have to think about. One is, what's that going to mean for the Pentagon to have even more money to run around the world killing people? You know, that's what militaries do. They kill people and break things. Hopefully they do it when they're told to by some civilian leadership, but that's their job, kill people and break things. And our military does it very, very well. We should be very proud or whatever. But the other side of that is where is that money going to come from? It doesn't just grow on trees. So that money, according to Trump's proposal, is going to come from slashing the Environmental Protection Agency by 30%, so much for clean water and, and fresh air, so much for, for doing something about the water in Flint, Michigan, for example. It's going to come from a 29% slashing of the State Department budget. So if you don't have diplomats, you're not going to have diplomacy. If you don't have diplomacy, you're going to have war. You're going to have war. So this is privileging war over diplomacy. It's going to essentially gut the entire foreign aid budget. 
so people around the world are really going to hate us more than they do now, it's going to cut something like $15 billion out of health and human services. That's going to be great for dealing with the healthcare crisis here. That's where that money's going to go. So if you look at the budget as something that's a symbol of what are our national priorities, you couldn't ask for a better example than this $54 billion escalation in military spending. Because what it says is, all we care about around the world is strengthening our military so that we can threaten and kill more people. And if the price to be paid is in the health and well-being of our own people, so be it. That's fine. I would venture to say that the goal is not the killing in itself, but something else. What is that something else? Well, officially, the something else is to be the biggest and most powerful military in the world, which we already are. Our military spending dwarfs that of the rest of the world. We have, uh, we'd have to go to the next eight countries, including these giant military powers like Russia, China, Saudi Arabia. We'd have to go through eight of them to, to reach the, the amount that the U.S. spends every year. But the goal is to be able to assert U.S. power militarily. And the irony, of course, is that in the recent decades, the U.S. has lost power in a number of arenas. Our economic clout, still the biggest economy in the world, but our economic clout ain't what it used to be. You know, we're, we now have a challenger in the Chinese economy, which is almost as big as the U.S. economy. In cultural influence, Hollywood still has a lot of influence out there, but we're no longer the only cultural global actor. We don't have that kind of influence. Diplomatically, well, among other things, we don't have so many diplomats. So our diplomatic influence is reduced. The one arena where our influence is unsurpassed, unchallengeable, and whatever other adjectives you want to use is the military. So that's what they want to strengthen even more. And again, to what end? I mean, is it th so that we control every drop of oil on the planet? Is that we can cut down every tree? I mean, what's it about? Well, that's part of it. But it's a more complicated world right now. When we talked about the, the war in Iraq, there was a lot of talk in the protests and elsewhere, this is a war for oil. I always was a little uncomfortable with that because it was never only a war for oil. It was partly a war for oil. It was partly a war for military bases. It was partly a war for establishing a beachhead for U.S. military power in a particular part of the world that was very strategic. So there were a bunch of reasons for that war, military and strategic reasons, but certainly oil was a big component of it. And it was complicated because it wasn't about getting the oil. The U.S. wasn't actually getting that much oil from the region by that time. And oil is fungible. You know, there's one giant global oil market. And once your oil's on that market, it's going to go around the world and anybody who has a lot of money can buy it. So it's not about access to oil. It's about controlling who gets the contracts in each country, which oil companies are going to emerge as the global giants and which ones will be left behind a little bit. It's that kind of control that is at the root of this. We're also looking now, of course, about alternative fuels, we're looking at natural gas, we're looking at all those things. So it's a lot about resources. But increasingly, it's going to be even more about water. Right. Water is going to be the resource that countries go to war for. 
And we're seeing this already. We're seeing the effects of climate change and desertification. I always have a hard time pronouncing that. The drying out and the rising deserts in parts of the world. So if you look at the crisis in Syria, one of the things we don't hear very much is how climate change was one of the really powerful reasons for the crisis there. Because there had been a drought, an unprecedented drought in, in Syria for about three years, starting in around 2006, 2007. And one of the things that happened, this had, was always the breadbasket of the Middle East, and one of the things that happened was that 800,000 farmers and their families were driven off the land, couldn't survive anymore. And they flooded the cities looking for work. And because it was no longer a state-based economy where everybody could be put to work, even if it was kind of a make-work job or something, now it had been liberalized, as they like to say. It was now a neoliberal economy where privatization was the name of the game. And the governing powers still had a lot of influence, but there were just not jobs available. People flooded in looking for jobs. Of the few jobs available, of course, they went to people who knew someone in power. That meant they were more likely to be Alawites because that was the group that was dominant in the powerful families that run the place. And that led to an increase in sectarianism that had never been much of an issue in uh, Syria before. Suddenly it was. And those factors were all a big part of what exacerbated the crisis so quickly in Syria. So when we think about climate change, you can't separate that from the question of political crises that erupt in the world that are mainly initially for democracy, for the rights of citizenship, for jobs, for dignity, all the things that the Arab Spring focused on. But in the background is this question of climate change. And those are the kinds of intersections that are important both in the context of our world, you know, what's going on around the world, but increasingly, the good news, and there is some, increasingly we're seeing the intersection of movements in the same way. So at the recent climate march, the, the theme of the climate march itself that brought over 200,000 people into the streets in Washington on a scorching 94-degree day, drenching humidity. It was just awful out there. There were people filling the streets under the theme of marching for climate, jobs, and justice, making that link. And people marched in contingents. So we were led by the defenders of the earth, the indigenous people and the climate justice activists. There were the defenders of justice, who were the civil rights organizations and black and Latino community organizations. And it went through a bunch of contingents. The contingent I was part of, and it, we were so proud of this, were, were the protectors of the future, which were the children and the youth and the anti-war movement. Because if we have wars, we're going to lose the future. And all of that brought these issues together. And I think we're seeing that increasingly, not only in the U.S., but around the world, where indigenous movements that are fighting mining companies are linking with environmental justice organizations who are linking with anti-war organizations that are trying to stop the militarization that comes with cutting down indigenous tribal areas to get to their oil. All of those links are being made increasingly around the world. The argument in favor of a strong U.S. military says something like, if you become 
weak, quote-unquote, then another superpower like Russia will become dominant and take over the world's resources. How do you respond to that as a peace activist, particularly with Russia led by a person like Putin? Yeah, you know, it's it's very complicated. I think that we're seeing the the claim, and it's been true for a long time, that the claim has been made that the U.S. must be the dominant power because the way you put it is right. If we don't, China will rise or Russia will rise or whatever. The reality is that, first of all, the gap in power between the United States and any other individual country is so enormous, whether you look at numbers and power of nuclear weapons, power of the military, economic power, in all those ways. So it's not so likely to happen that way. The other thing is it doesn't take into account how the people of the world have changed and how the power of people's movements has changed the world. So we no longer are in a situation where you have competing empires that simply fight each other and people are nothing more than cannon fodder for their respective governments. Partly because of the rise of uh, new media, both social media and the internet in general, that allows a level of communication and collaboration between uh, peoples around the world that are fighting for the same goals against different governments. It's just not possible for new governments to rise to this kind of U.S. dominant empire, if you will, uh, the way it used to be. We can see a model for that in the mobilization that happened in the run-up to the war in Iraq on February 15, 2003. It was known as the day the world said no to war. And there were people in, I think it was a, a little over 800 cities in, in 65 countries around the world that flooded their capitals, demanding that their governments not support this looming war. And it went all the way to Antarctica. It began in the South Pacific and then in Australia and New Zealand and across to, to Russia and down through all of Europe and then down into Africa and jumped the pond to Latin America and finally to, to North America with thousands, hundreds of thousands filling the streets, two million people in London, two million in, in Barcelona, a million in Madrid, two million in Rome. Most of all, the biggest of them were countries where the government was supporting the U.S. and people were outraged. And you had this moment of global unity where you had some governments, the German government, the, uh, the French government, the Chinese government, and others around the world saying no. You had a few governments, the British, uh, the, a few others that were supporting the war, the, the, uh, the Italian government, the Spanish government, but you had people around the world saying no. Now, you can look at that protest in two ways. You can say, well, yeah, but you didn't win, right? You, the war still happened, so obviously you failed. And it's true. The war still went ahead. We were not able to stop it. But to say we failed, I think, really misses how that set of demonstrations changed the world. Among other things, in the height of that day, when the demonstrations had been going on for 24 hours, the, the final ones were in New York at the foot of the United Nations, there was an AP story that broke saying that the, the U.S. and Britain had just announced that they would no longer uh, try. They were giving up their effort to get the United Nations to endorse the war. They realized they couldn't do it. And that was because of that mobilization. Now, that didn't stop the war from going ahead, but it did stop it from being legal. That was huge. That was huge. Because whatever we think here in this country 
around the world, other countries tend to take international law very seriously. So that was important. It also set the stage for four years later, when George Bush was thinking about going to war against Iran, it was the recognition of what that would lead to in terms of massive upheaval around the world that stopped him from doing it. So it, it's really part of what we can credit for stopping another disastrous war in the Middle East led by the United States. And finally, one of the most important things is that the activists in uh, Egypt who were involved in organizing for, uh, for February 15th, who were kind of embarrassed that their protest was you know, sort of little and didn't really go very far, and as one of them said in a, a great film about those protests, he said, you know, we were seeing on television these white, whiskey-swilling infidels around the world mobilizing in their millions while we could only get, you know, this little sort of nothing demonstration, and we swore we had to do better. And sure enough, eight years later, in 2011, some of those same people were at the core of the mobilizations in Tahrir Square that overthrew a dictatorship. Right. So they did better. That was really important, and I think that has transformed the world that we live in. So it doesn't make any sense anymore. I mean, you could argue it never did, but it certainly doesn't make sense now to say that if we don't have U.S. military power and uh, nuclear weapons sailing around the world on our nine carrier groups at all times, that somehow some other power is going to rise up and smash us. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, again, you know, there's, as you said, there's, so many different ways to look at that. And I think people who are activists look at the power of demonstrations and what is accomplished. It's also important to look at what is not accomplished. Namely, I mean, Arab Spring had its moment and then look right. at where we are now. Right. You know, the, the demonstrations in 2003, worldwide peace demonstrations. You look back at the 1960s and the incredible peace movements that were happening then and cut to the present and you have a kind of Orwellian surveillance state which is kind of beyond the uh, worst nightmares of any hippie that was <laughs> that was marching and so speaking as one of those hippies who was marching <laughs> you know I mean it's yes but there's always a yes but you know certainly the rise of the internet and new communications technologies that made possible for example the mobilizations of of February 15th, 2003, in six weeks we managed to mobilize a global day. That had never happened before. That same technology is being used by governments around the world to oppress their own people. That's certainly true. We have all faced the good and the bad of those technologies. And there's no, there's no automaticity in any protest that it's going to change the world for the better in the longer run. But it's a question of moving forward, understanding that there will be steps back, and certainly the Arab Spring was one of the giants of that example. It was enormous that you had these countries throughout a region characterized by family monarchies and family-based so-called democracies that were really military dictatorships that were rising for the first time and claiming the rights of citizenship. And there were different impacts, you know, that what, what happened and what was left behind in Tunisia is far different than what happened in, in Cairo, in, in Egypt. But to say that things are as bad or worse as they were doesn't take into account what happened to people when they participated in that and saw the power of people rising. I think if we bring it home to these last couple of months in the, in the first hundred days or whatever of this administration, 
which has been so terrifying for so many people for so many reasons. We also have some victories that we should keep in mind. One of the most dramatic, I think, was the incredible mobilization against the Muslim ban. You have this announcement of this horrific set of policies, including the banning of all refugees for four months, no refugees from anywhere in the world, the banning of anyone from originally seven Muslim-majority countries, and people flooded into the streets, flooded the airports, took over the airports, not only saying no to the ban, but providing immediate services to people getting off the, off the planes in 15 languages with signs saying, do you need a lawyer? Do you need help? Come here, we'll help you. That had never happened before. And one of the effects of it, certainly one of the effects was to bring into the streets and into the airports people who had, in many cases, never protested before, including students and activists and ordinary working people and lawyers and journalists and others who had done their work and never really thought of themselves as protesters. Suddenly there they were. But the other side of it was it gave backbone to the judges. I'll tell you, I was really worried about the judges. When Trump took over and started with these executive orders and all of this stuff, just sidelining all the weak but existing democratic checks and balances of our country, I was really worried. I, was, I knew that this was going to end up in the courts a lot. And we have a generation of judges who had never really been tested. You know, you didn't have to be very brave to be a judge in the U.S. You know, maybe once in a while there would be some political pressure in a certain community on this or that. But in the main, you could go to work, do your job, and it, you didn't have to be very brave. And I thought, God, I don't know if they're up to the task. And it turns out most of them are. They're committed to the Constitution, committed to the rule of law. And most important, I think, they saw that people have their back. So that brave judge in Hawaii who was the first to ban the Muslim ban, he had to be seeing that there were people throughout the country flooding the airports saying, we will not accept this ban. So he knew he didn't stand alone. He didn't stand against a population that was supporting this stuff. And I think that was huge. And I imagine that when one judge does that, it also empowers other judges. Absolutely. And the fact that one judge and then another and then another make these good rulings, that also enables and empowers and encourages the protesters to stay in the streets, to stay at the airports. More judges, more lawyers came to staff those tables. That was huge. That was huge. You have talked about the importance of diplomacy, and there's a kind of platitude of combining diplomacy with military action. Yeah. You, you've responded to that, that there's, there's, a, there's a problem with that way of thinking. There's a problem with that way of thinking. <laughs> diplomacy is really important. And I think we should be clear that diplomacy is not the answer to all the problems of the world. Diplomacy in the United States in particular has often been used as a tool of war. We should be very clear. But in the immediate, in most cases, alternatives are posed at the levels of power that are either military or diplomatic. And the problem is if you say, well, you need this combination, most often what happens is that when you use military force, you make diplomacy impossible. And we certainly have seen that in Syria. We saw that from the beginning when President Obama would say over and over again, and I always wanted to jump up and hug him when he did, there is no military solution. Absolutely right. Yay, he's saying the right thing. And then his next sentence would be, and so we're going to send 500 special forces to 
restore whatever in, in Syria or in Iraq. We're going to send troops back into Iraq. We're going to send more troops into Afghanistan. What that meant was that's where the money, the high-level attention, the strategic emphasis was aimed, and the diplomacy is sidelined. So, oh yeah, we'll, we'll send some diplomats. But the diplomats never got the kind of backing in Washington. They were never the ones calling the shots in the Situation Room. They were an afterthought. And what a surprise, they failed. They never had the backing of the President or the Senate or the House, and they just weren't allowed to do their job. It was never going to be easy to think about a diplomatic solution in Syria, not least because when we say the Syrian war, that's really not true. There's at least, at this point by my last count, there's at least 11 separate wars being waged in Syria. And only one is the Syrian war between a part of the Syrian population and a terribly repressive regime. That's one of almost a dozen. The others are regional wars between Iran and Saudi Arabia, sectarian wars between Sunni and Shia Islam, of course the war between ISIS and a variety of actors, the war between Turkey and the Kurds, are all being fought to the last Syrian. So it was never going to be easy to come up with a diplomatic solution. But what we've done instead has been to make everything worse. When I wrote my book on ISIS and the, and the global war on terror, it, it came out at the end of 2015, and in the book I identify seven separate wars that were being fought. We now have, I think it's 11, maybe it's 12 by now, separate wars, and we keep getting more wars that are being exacerbated by the U.S. sending more troops, by the Russians sending more troops, by Iran sending military equipment, by Turkey sending military equipment, by the Saudis arming everybody and their brother. It's making everything worse, and it's making diplomacy impossible. It's also, it puts us as citizens in a position of saying, what is to be done? What can we do today when the causes that have led up to this situation have taken many years to be put in place? I mean, you talk about the rise of ISIS as something that's been going on during this entire century. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I think that's right. I think there's two aspects to your question. The first, you know, what can we as citizens do? One is to recognize that neither we as citizens nor we as a as a country can determine the future of Syria or Libya or Yemen or any of these other uh, uh, countries and conflicts that are underway. What we can do is to help bring them to an end, the specific conflicts, or we can exacerbate them. What we tend to do is exacerbate them militarily and in every other way. That's one part of it. The other part is if we want to look at the the rise of ISIS, which is the kind of uber excuse, if you will, for all of these wars that are being waged in the region these days, and it's the excuse for a great deal of the escalating repression in many parts of the world, including here in the United States, things like the Muslim ban, things like the use of the threat of terrorism as the rationale for saying that local police forces need to have tanks to patrol their streets. In all of those ways, you do have to look at the origins of ISIS. ISIS is not the result, as it's so often put, of President Obama withdrawing the troops from Iraq in 2011. ISIS has its origins in 2004 during the U.S. occupation of 
Iraq under George Bush. And it ha has its roots. There's a lot about ISIS we don't know, but there's a ton that we do know. And one is, how did it start? It started in one of the many prisons the U.S. had operated in Iraq during those days. It was a place called Camp Bukha. And in Camp Bukha, like many other places, there were a lot of relatively young, really angry Iraqis that had been swept up in various sweeps by either U.S. or Iraqi opposition, uh, the new opposition forces who were now in power in Baghdad, who were turned over to the U.S., imprisoned in these U.S. prisons. And what was going on in 2004 in these U.S. prisons? That was the year of Abu Ghraib. Now, some of your listeners may be young enough that they don't really remember what was Abu Ghraib. Older people will. But Abu Ghraib was another one of these prisons, very much like Camp Bukha, where ISIS started, the group that became known as ISIS. They had a different name at the beginning, but they were in Camp Bukha. In another one of these U.S.-run uh, prison camps called Abu Ghraib, what happened was the same thing that was happening at all of them. Prisoners were being mistreated, humiliated, and tortured. And what was different in Abu Ghraib was a set of photographs went public, and they went viral. And those photographs were so horrifying in the United States. They were of young American soldiers laughing and presiding over the humiliation and torture of Iraqi prisoners. In one famous one, there was a young woman soldier, I think she was only 21, 22 years old, holding a dog leash. And at the end of the leash was a collar around the neck of an Iraqi prisoner forced to walk naked on all fours. And she was laughing along with several other soldiers standing around. In another iconic one, there was an Iraqi prisoner hooded, standing on a box with his arms out and with electric wires connected to his, to his fingers to be used for giving him electric shocks, presided over by young American soldiers who were laughing at it. It went on and on. It was so reprehensible. And yet no high-level officials were ever held accountable. Three or four young soldiers were sentenced to a few months in jail. That was it. There was no accountability for it. There was no acknowledgement or recognition that this happens by young American soldiers because of the demonization of an entire population that was part of their training. No recognition of that, no accountability. But what happened in Camp Bukha was that everybody knew that this was now going on at every prison camp. And that while maybe at that moment nobody was being tortured in Camp Bukha, they all knew that at any moment they could be. So the anger explodes, and it exploded into an armed resistance movement in Iraq, led by, in many cases, Sunni Iraqis who moved towards very extremist positions, whether they started with those positions or not. Most of them didn't. But they moved towards it. The government that was put in power by the United States, uh, a, a, a sectarian Shia-dominated government that the U.S. had created and armed and paid. That government was so repressive towards Iraqi Sunnis that many Sunnis started to believe that an, uh, an extremist organization like ISIS became the lesser evil. They would unite with ISIS as a way of fighting back against this government. So it set the stage. The U.S. occupation set the stage for the rise of extremism. So if we're serious about stopping extremism, we have to look at the conditions that give rise to extremism. We can't always stop any particular terrorist attack at any moment from happening. Often we can, sometimes we can't. But what we can do is the medium and long-term, much harder work of stopping and reversing 
the conditions we have created that lead perfectly ordinary people from seeing an organization like ISIS as somehow the lesser evil to their own government and to the United States. One of the things that I think is so difficult right now is we know what we're fighting against. I mean, when you have a Muslim ban, people flood into the airports and people write letters and people call their congresspeople and so on. We're fighting against that. It's wrong. In terms of foreign policy, what are we fighting for? Like, what Mm. does and would an activist movement look like that is fighting for a fair world, a peaceful world, a world in which we can coexist with other nations without either being attacked by them or attacking them as the normal mode of going about our business? You just said what we're fighting for. (laughs) And it's not easy. But the notion. But that I mean, we, that's a, that's a sort of like that. That's like a generality. Like right, of course. And foreign policy is a generality. So you can talk about U.S. foreign policy writ large. It doesn't get you very far. You kind of have to talk about what's U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. What's foreign policy towards environmental protections? You know, there there's lots of ways. Geographic issue, all those things. But I think the overarching goal is we want a foreign policy that privileges diplomacy over the military. There's some pretty basic ways we could change our foreign policy. Again, it comes back to spending priorities, staffing priorities. We have a State Department, even before the 30% cut that Trump is proposing, we have a State Department that has the same number of diplomats as the military has musicians. Now, there's something really wrong with that. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, aside from what we might think about military music. That's a different matter. But, you know, this is not the way the balance should be. We need way more diplomats than we do soldiers. That's priority number one. Priority number two, if our goal is to be not hated around the world, put aside are we loved. We don't have to be loved. But it would be nice if we were not hated. It means we have to look at why are we hated. We're hated because we deny other people their freedom. You know, if you remember after 9-11, one of the things George Bush claimed that was so wrong, it was such a lie, when he said, why do they hate us? They hate us for our freedoms. They didn't hate us for our freedoms. They hated us for denying them their freedom. How do we do that? By supporting dictators around the world because it's more convenient for us to deal with an absolute dictator than with a messy, uneven democracy that sometimes might make decisions we don't like. If we have a dictator that we are providing their weapons, we're providing their police with training and tear gas and whatever else they want, and we're providing them with all the money in the world, they're going to do what we say in most cases. Not exactly, but pretty much. That's a lot easier for the U.S. than to have to deal with countries who have their own rights and their own understanding of their place in history and in the world. So we need a foreign policy that's based on the U.S. being one country among many and not being the colossus that oversees the rest of the world uh, with so much more power that everyone must do our bidding uh, and the people be damned, which is basically what ends up happening. So I think that we need to both fight against the existing policies that have made people hate us, which puts us at much greater risk. It doesn't make us safer. You know, the global war on terror has made us far more dangerous in in terms of our own safety. I used to travel around the Middle East 
all the time. I went to, you know, a dozen different countries. Traveling as a woman alone, I never worried. I never had any problems. I mean, there were problems when, during Palestinian uprisings. Uh, you know, the Israeli military was a pretty dangerous operation, but they weren't targeting me. They were targeting Palestinians. But I never worried about traveling around as an American, as a woman. These days, it's very dangerous in a lot of parts of the Middle East and other parts of the world to be an American traveling alone, to be a woman traveling alone. And a lot of that is because of the sectarianism and the militarization of both governments and parts of resistance movements that have taken up really, in my view, very backward politics, but understandable in the wake of this so-called global war on terror. When, when the U.S. answered this huge crime of 9-11, this crime against humanity, the attacks on the World Trade Center, answered that crime with a war and a global war and said, we are going to treat any country that doesn't join our war as if they are part of the terrorists. That's what changed the world. That's what put us all at greater risk. It wasn't 9-11. It was 9-12, yeah. the day of that announcement. So I think that's what we're facing. We need a foreign policy that comes back to the same goals that we have for our own communities. We want environmental security. We want safety for ourselves and our families. And we want some level of equality. We don't want, you know, this massive rise of economic power of the rich and the massive expansion of poor communities. That's what we're seeing right now. The middle class is being hollowed out. Poor people are increasing exponentially. And the ultra-rich are getting richer and richer than anybody ever imagined they could. One of the reasons I think that Donald Trump is in the White House right now is that there is a kind of so-called populism in this country that buys into the idea of American exceptionalism, buys into the idea of the terrorist threat, the global war on terror. And we have, as a result of, of that, a very polarized country and a very polarized media where you've got, I mean, I have, I sometimes post things on my Facebook. I posted, for example, an article about a journalist being arrested for doing journalism. And that's a very mm. dangerous moment. Right. I'm speaking as a journalist in, in this country when journalists are arrested for loudly asking questions of our elected and appointed officials. Okay, there's a gentleman on my Facebook page who says, well, that comes from the Washington Post. That's a lie. So, you know, yeah. uh, so then I posted, it also came from the New York Post and from the Atlantic. He goes, well, all they're all liars. And so you have a world in which these people who are so-called populists don't believe anything that is printed in reputable journalistic outlets. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple components to what you're talking about. On the issue of journalism, there is, and, and this is one of the problems of the Trump administration, is that it's enabled and empowered and legitimized this discourse that says essentially all journalism, whether it's left, right, or center of the mainstream journalists, with the possible exception of Fox News, partly, and it isn't even all of Fox News, apparently, that's acceptable anymore to these people, is all lies. And there's that's like a, a position to comfort someone, to say, you don't have to listen to anything. Facts are not facts. There are no such thing as facts. And you only have to listen to people you already think you agree with. That's part of it. The other part of it is the, uh, and they're related, 
this notion, I, it gets called populism. I'm not even convinced that's quite the right term, although it's the only one we have, it seems, at the moment. But it's this massive distrust of perceived power without understanding where real power lies. So this idea of Washington as the swamp and the idea that someone like Donald Trump, one of the, whatever he is, the 200th richest person in the world or wherever he stands on that horrendous list, is somehow not part of the, quote, elites, that he's not an elite. Uh, You know, what does that mean? It means your definition of elite is someone who was elected to office. Whether you agree with them or not, they are the elites and not the people who pay for those elections, who pay the lobbyists, who own the corporations that make the campaign contributions that determine who wins those elections, you know, that you're leaving out the whole economic side. So that's part of it. But the other part, which I think makes it so complicated, is that I think a lot of the people who are saying things like this guy who wrote on your Facebook page, they're all lies, is probably someone, and I'm giving him a lot of credit here, which may not be merited at all. I have no idea who he is. He may well be someone who has lost his job in a period where a whole host of reasons, ranging from the rise of robotics to the new influence and access to alternative fuels. Maybe he was a coal miner who lost his job and knows it's never coming back, but somehow believes, because he doesn't have any choice, he thinks, but to believe, that Donald Trump is going to bring back coal mining. Well, he's not, and this guy's not going to get his job back as a coal miner, so he's desperate, and he's grasping at things that make him feel somewhat less disempowered. Now, as I say, I'm giving him a lot of credit here. He's yeah. accepting a, a, you know, a worldview that also is fundament has fundamental to it, a kind of racism that is so pervasive in this society that it's really dangerous, and a bunch of other things. And I think there's another component to it, which is that what Donald Trump did was he spoke a lot of people's language and yes. didn't talk down to them. Absolutely. A- and I think they're. I don't think it's necessarily about, you know, do I still have my job? It's about, am I seen and am I respected? I think you're absolutely right. And I think there are huge problems in both parties. But once Trump was the example of the Republican Party, he was different in that way. He doesn't speak the kind of language of traditional politics, traditional media. He speaks in a certain style that I think many people view as a working class style. I'm not sure that's accurate, but I think it's often viewed that way. And I think what you spoke to earlier, Mary Charlotte, is really important about how journalism gets separated from ordinary people's lives. I mean, if you look at the maps of the election, it's quite extraordinary the degree to which you have coastal, if you want to use red and blue, I'm not sure that's the most accurate, but that's part of it. You have the blue coastal states and a massive landmass in the middle of red with a few big cities where there's, uh, you know, smaller concentrations of, of Democrats and, you know, more progressive side. And blue New Mexico. And blue New Mexico, yes. It's it's not absolute by any stretch of the imagination. But what is different, I think, is that if you look at who are the journalists, journalists tend to go to journalism school. That tends to be in the rather elite universities, They, which means they usually come from big cities in those areas. Among other things, they don't know a lot of people in rural areas and small towns. 
they almost never know anyone in the military. When you have this so-called volunteer military, we can analyze it and say it's not really volunteer. People are drafted by poverty. They're drafted by lack of opportunities. They're drafted, in some cases, by lack of health care. They're drafted by all kinds of social and economic factors. But there's not a legal draft. And in that environment, often journalists and politicians and, in many cases, anti-war activists don't know anyone in the military. The rise of organizations like Iraq Veterans Against the War and Veterans for Peace, I think, are so important, partly because they bring that vantage point to organizations and communities that otherwise would have very little connection to them. But that's certainly true of journalists. It makes that gap wider. And, you know, you do have this problem of the lack of answer to people's sense of being ignored. Certainly the Democratic Party was no better on this issue of what you spoke to of people feeling that they are heard and respected. Democrats didn't do that. Hillary Clinton didn't do that. And the Republicans didn't, certainly didn't do that either. Trump did it in a, a certain cynical, rhetorical way. And that was all many people had. So they you know, were willing to accept him. And I think that really speaks to some of the failures of our political system here. It speaks to the failures of, of our movements, that people were, I'm not saying that everyone who voted for Trump was a staunch racist, but I will say that people who voted for Trump were prepared to accept a level of racism. It seems to me that we are at a place, I mean, when you talk about what is necessary to have peace in our foreign policy, when you talk about what are the conditions that give rise to terrorism, it's access to jobs, it's access to security, it's access to water. It's, it's access to dignity. It's access to dignity, which, I mean, which is contained in all those things. Dignity Absolutely. is, is comes from, you know, the conditions of one's actual life. It does, but it also, I think, has to do with the nature of governance. You know, if we look at the Arab Spring as one moment in time, understanding that all of what followed and the, the defeats in many ways, but at that moment, what sparked it, the, the self-immolation of a, of a young fruit seller in Tunisia, he had a job. He was surviving economically, not well, it wasn't a good job. He had had an education, couldn't find a job in his field, but he was okay. He wasn't starving to death. But what finally snapped was when a police official treated him with utter disdain and smacked him in some way for some perceived slight. And he realized, as we can assume, that he had no power. He had no access to being a citizen of his own country with rights. So it's about jobs, it's about bread, it's about all those things, it's about getting an education, but it's also about being treated as a human being, that human rights is the sum of all those rights. And I think that's what's so important. And unfortunately, Trump was able to grab some of that, that seeking, as you put it, for someone who hears me. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a real challenge for all of us in how we mobilize, in how we organize, in how we, how we challenge racism, in how we challenge Islamophobia, in how we challenge the denial of rights to immigrants and refugees, all of that, the misogyny, all of it. We have to challenge it in ways that respect communities and acknowledge 
how communities are being destroyed by those things and why they're how they're being used. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that the dignity that working class Americans want and the dignity that somebody in Egypt or Tunisia might want are really similar. The dignity that black communities want and the dignity that white communities want. You know, we're not being brought together somehow. Yes, but it's a yes and a but. I think when we do talk about the needs in black and white communities, there is a fundamental distinction which goes to the issue of white privilege. White people in this country, and it's it's part of how the economic power that started in slavery and went through Jim Crow segregation, and then even since the civil rights movement with the destruction of legal segregation, but the kind of racism that pervades our society now through mass incarceration, all of those aspects of racism provide to white communities, working class and upper middle class and everything in between, a kind of white privilege-based superiority. At least I'm not that. At least I'm not black. And I think that's where the fundamental primacy of the struggle against racism in this country is somewhat different than the situation overall in Tunisia or in Egypt or whatever. At the level of ordinary people versus the government, ordinary people versus broad economic factors, yes, there are parallels and similarities. But on the question of what does it mean to say we want dignity as a community, for working class white people, it does have to do with jobs and and being heard in those ways. In black communities, too often it has to start with getting an occupying police force armed with tanks off the streets of our city first, before we can even imagine equality or being heard or those more subtle forms of dignity. They're bound up with each other, for sure. Yeah, I but mean, they I, are very different. They are different in some ways. I mean, I think there are communities where the concept of white privilege is kind of theoretical. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Not, because they are not privileged in their own society. But if they are able somehow to move to another place and find a job, for instance, they will have the chance of finding a place to live in a community that's likely to have better schools than if they're black. Right. That is a reality, even for the poorest whites. Except that the poorest whites don't have that opportunity to move. That's true. And white privilege is an ideological reality as much as it is an economic reality. That's absolutely true. But it is a systemic reality that isn't just about individual white people being uh, being racist or, or you know, dis- individual discrimination. It's a systemic reality that is rooted in the economies of our country. We've kind of ranged far and wide. We've, we're <laughs> talking about uh, ISIS and foreign policy. We're, we've barely touched on the reality of um, past anti-war movements and anti-nuclear war movements and where we are with that. We have a whole country full of people who want to get involved, who want to activate in one way or another. Absolutely. What do you see as the most powerful and effective ways that ordinary Americans of any race, of any economic status, can get involved? This is the critical question for right now. We started with this, we'll end with it. It's great. 
I think what we're seeing right now is that work that goes on at the local and state level is going to be far more important in the short term than national campaigns. It doesn't mean that a city council resolution saying don't escalate the war in Yemen is going to stop that, but it does mean that it's at the local level where we still have access to political power, we still have access to local journalism, local journalists, the editorial boards of local newspapers are far more accessible than the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal or something, that those campaigns are going to be the ones where we see real victories. And we're seeing those victories. The courts overturning the Muslim ban, the stepping down of candidates to, for the, the guy who was going to be the, uh, the Secretary of Labor because of pressure from workers. All of these things are victories that started in local areas and end up having a national impact right now. We saw it with the climate march, where there, were, there was the giant climate march in Washington, and there were something like 250 climate marches, sister marches around the country. The Women's March. The Women's March, the same thing. And I think that that sense of mobilization, where we're talking about the $54 billion escalation in the military budget, there are city councils across the country that are passing resolutions right now saying, say no to the $54 billion military budget escalation. Not because they can stop it on their own, but one, because it puts their community on record as saying, if that happens, so many billions, so many millions of dollars from our community, is our tax money, is going to go to the military, and that means it's not going to go to Head Start, to health care, to education. The National Priorities Project's website, nationalpriorities.org, that has this incredible trade-off section that tells every community, Santa Fe can find out how many millions of dollars have Santa Fe residents and, and taxpayers spent on the military budget in the last 10 years? What are they being asked to spend this year? What could that money be used for here at home? How many kids in Head Start? How many veterans getting medical care? How many new jobs in producing better infrastructure? All those things. How many solar panel houses could be created? Those are the things that affect people at their community level, in their own lives. And over time, what we see is that those resolutions start to reflect and be claimed as a reflection of a national shift. And that's what gives us power. That's what we have to be working on. So all of these local campaigns against the rise in the military budget, against the Muslim ban, all of these things, this is where we're seeing real victories. Phyllis Bennis is a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, which is on the web at ips-dc.org. She's the author of many books, including Understanding ISIS and the New Global War on Terror. Thank you so much for being with us. It's great to be with you. You've been listening to Radio Activism. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. If you have any comments and questions, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media. You can subscribe to the show if you want to hear more conversations with activists and authors. Go to radioactivism.net to sign up. You can also sign up there for weekly email updates. We're at facebook.com slash radiocafe and on Twitter at radiocafemc. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.